Hello, and welcome to Broadband. Here at Broadband, we live by the philosophy that one needs other human beings to teach them how to be human. Our guide for today on this journey of communal actualization is Alicia Jo Straka, a professional accordionist, opera-trained vocalist, pianist, and composer. I want to set the stage for this interview by shining the spotlight on three main points of focus for our dialogue. The first being Alicia and her unique human journey. Next, I want to provide you with some depth of knowledge on what it's like to take the path less traveled in the music industry and the digital age. Alicia, being an accordionist who moonlights as an opera singer, makes her the perfect candidate for the job. And finally, I want to share some science-based benefits that come with practicing and listening to music. Facts and studies that I found quite interesting. Without further ado, hello, Alicia. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Aziz. How are you doing? I'm doing phenomenal. Even better now that you're here with me. Hey, me too. Uh, Thanks for being my dancing partner for today's event. I want to start this dialogue by learning about Alicia, the vocalist and composer. But first, I want to ask if you grew up in a musical household. Was this something that was very common in your household in Portland, Oregon? It was very common in my household. Uh, I grew up with two parents who taught music. I I like to joke, but it's kind of accurate. It was a bit like the Von Trapp family from The Sound of Music. I have two siblings. I'm the youngest. We were all required to take piano lessons, but we sang as well because the type of music my parents taught was choral music. They also played piano, but that was their main thing was teaching singing. So I was in their community choir from the age of two. And actually, we have a recording of my first vocal solo ever. And I think I was four years old. We were just required to take music lessons. Actually, when we were younger, it was how we made our allowance. We had to practice our instruments 30 minutes a day, and then we got a dollar a day, which was awesome. So that they really instilled, you know, even their financial resources to try to encourage us to stick with music because it was so important to them and they wanted it to be really important to us. And it worked. All of us got music degrees. Uh, So if if you and I were to write a screenplay or a theater piece about your life, how would we direct the scene where you find the accordion and fall deeply in love with this unique instrument? We would need a really long movie for that. I'll try to tell it in a nice uh, little package. Um, When I was six years old, our family was traveling around because since my parents were both teachers, we had the summers off together. And we all got in the car, well, in the van, the big red van, and traveled around with this tent trailer. The tent trailer didn't have air conditioning. We were on our way to Yellowstone, and we didn't make it. And it was just too hot. We were like, this is miserable camping. And we were talking to some strangers who said, you should go north. It's beautiful. You know, it's a lot cooler this time of year, but it's still really, like, really pretty. So they were like, great. So we cut off the east coast of our trip, and we just headed straight up. And where we ended up was just a little bit over the border. Once we crossed into Canada was this cute little town called Kimberly, BC. And it's like this tiny little Bavarian town that very much seems like, you know, a stereotype of Germany, what that might be like, a little village. But the craziest part was they happened to have an international accordion festival going on right when we got there. It only happens once a year, you know, for one week. And there were just accordion players everywhere. There were like thousands of accordion players in this tiny village for this competition slash festival. And so I was six at the time and my parents had started me on piano at age four. So I did recognize the right side of the accordion, at least in North America, is commonly the piano accordion. And so that looked like a piano to me, you know? So even though I was only six, I was like, oh, uh, that kind of looks like the instrument I'm learning, but the rest of it looks really weird. And my parents got me an accordion lesson with a man named Karl Heinz. And I will never forget that first lesson. And the craziest part, I think, is we actually met 
a really wonderful accordion teacher named Eileen Hagen, who is from Portland, Oregon. So there we go. I bought, my parents got me an accordion and we set up lessons with Eileen for when we got back to Portland. And the rest is kind of history. I kept trying to, I mean, we'll get into this, but yeah, it just kind of kept following me. And I kept having opportunities to make money with accordion, play music. And this always cracked me up because I also played piano and I never like competitively played piano, but I did do some festivals for piano. And when you did well on a festival at piano, you got a ribbon. Like, why would I want to practice for this when I could go win $500 for practicing accordion? Like, I'm going to practice accordion. Especially as a teenager, $500? Yeah, definitely. Not even talking teenager. That was the price for 10 and under. So I'm saying, like, I built an actual savings from age 8 to 17 from one week of accordion competitions every summer. Thousands of dollars, for sure. And I was, like, really proud. So I had the pleasure of developing a deep friendship with you. I was getting my master's in mechanical engineering. You were getting your master's in vocal performance and pedagogy. Now, pedagogy is a really interesting word. What does that mean to the people that don't understand what pedagogy is? Pedagogy is just the art of teaching, the craft of teaching. So it's by taking a pedagogy class, you're trying to learn how to teach a certain subject well. So that was me learning how to teach voice. What are some of the instruments you teach? So I teach accordion and just the piano style of accordion. I teach piano, keyboard, and I teach voice lessons in lots of various styles classical singing and jazz singing, I would say, are my main. And do you think everyone can learn an instrument? Definitely, yes. I think what people have to understand is, you know, depends on what your expectation is, depends on what you're hoping to be able to do. I don't think everybody can be amazing, but I do think whatever you set your mind to, like people can, even if they have like zero natural, you know, knack for something in the music world, they can still absolutely learn how to play something and how to enjoy their time on an instrument. And it will benefit them. Like it's utilizing parts of their brain that they're probably not using in other elements of their life, other places of their life. Have you noticed any mental and physical benefits to consistent practice? For sure. Mental benefits. I feel like I grew up a pretty happy kid. I really think that's true. And I've had some harder years recently, mostly just with grappling with this, like, okay, here I am with a master's degree in music and what the heck can I do with it? You know, and I knew that going into that, but some of the mental struggles that any of us go through if we're feeling sad. And I don't think I'd ever utilize music as much as I am these days just for like a pick me up. You know, there was one day I literally was just like, I don't feel happy today. And that's fine. That's that happens. But I went to the piano and like <laughs> wrote a song about it. And it felt so cliche. It was a really healing experience. And I like legitimately felt better after that. And I know that not everybody can do that, right? You can't just be like, I'm having a bad day with no musical training at all. I'm going to go write a song, feel better. I know that's not an option, but it, consuming music when you don't feel good is so beneficial. We People who can't play know that by listening to it. And what I can say as someone who plays and teaches is that, yeah, it also like it's on a much more personal level when you play it yourself. And it's such a mental benefit because you're doing something and you're creating, you know, tones outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. Building up on what you just said, I was doing some research on how music affects the brain, specifically as it pertains to hormone release. And I learned from this uh, cognitive psychologist named Daniel Levitin that when you listen to sad music when you're depressed, right, your brain releases a hormone called 
prolactin, and it's uh, essentially built to soothe and calm your pain. And that's the same hormone that's in mother's milk to soothe the baby's cries. So that's really, really mind-blowing. And if you listen to upbeat music, it boosts levels of serotonin and dopamine and just makes you happier, you know? So that is really cool about music is that where it seems like we're built, we're evolutionary built to react to music in positive ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about that. Like, what do you do to pump yourself up if you're getting ready to go out with friends? You like put music on, you know, I mean, it's at the root of every good party. It's so important. Yeah, to us as human beings and and our emotions. Uh, When I was in high school, I had multiple classes where I had to memorize and recite poetry in both English and Arabic. And I spent a lot of effort trying to do that. And years later, I can't remember a single word that Walt Whitman said. So have you noticed that it's much easier to learn a song than memorize a paragraph in a book? 100%. Yeah, we see that all sorts of places. There's a song my parents taught me growing up to remember our address. Mm -hmm. And it goes like this. My name's Alicia Baker. This is where I live. 4235 Southeast Concord, Milwaukee, Oregon. And if I ever got caught by a stranger, I would just sing that to them and they'd take me home. And here's why. I did some research on this as well. Music activates pathways within a complex structure buried beneath our brain. And it's called the limbic system, which is one of the oldest like systems in, in, our, brain, in our bodies and any vertebrate animal has it. It's highly involved in learning and memory. So if you want to learn something quicker or remember something longer, turn it into a catchy tune. It's why our ancestors use music to pass down information from generation to generation. So that's a really cool trick that your parents figured out. I wonder if they did some research on it, too. I think it just came from their choral, their choral background. Like, let's sing everything we can. Beautiful. And so that's a perfect segue into my next question to music education. Right. It's true. You know, and I can understand this, that humans appreciate and are drawn to music even without being fully educated on it. But is it safe to say that those who understand the intricacies of the music and the notes and the structure can appreciate it even more? I think so. I do think it's a double-edged sword, though. Once again, depends on the person. For me personally, the, the more I get to know music, the harder it is for me to relax while I listen to it. And I know a lot of people use music as like, you know, they can have it on while they're doing work or you can have music on while you're reading because it's a nice ambiance. I can't do that because I'm like... Even if there aren't words, like words throw me off one just to have lyrics. If I'm trying to read, I really can't do that. But even just if it's instrumental music, like I'm thinking about the chords, I'm thinking about the harmonic structure. And so I think what's cool about that is, yeah, I can like listen to music and really appreciate what the musicians are doing. I think that's the biggest difference is that the more you learn about music, the more you're like, dang, that's awesome. You know, like I love what they did there. Like, whoa, that's technically so hard. That's amazing. This person rocks. I don't think I can enjoy listening to music in a relaxed setting the same way that people who are just like, you know, don't have any musical training can be like, that sounds nice. I'm gonna have that on. To you, it's always distracting, right? Because you're always kind of analyzing what you're listening to. Yeah, it's something I have to consciously try not to do. Hey guys, this is the part of the podcast where people usually tell you to buy this product or subscribe to this service, but we don't have any sponsors yet. So we'll sell ourselves instead. We have four simple asks. One, please subscribe if you haven't already. Two, share the podcast, share it with your friends, share it with your family, and share it with a stranger. Start a conversation. Three, check out the show notes. You can find all the references that we've already made and are about to make on there. And four, engage with us on Instagram and email. Enjoy the rest of the show.
So with teaching and with studying music and, and going really deep in building knowledge in music, you probably find that, you know, the music and other arts are stigmatized within our societies. You know, you don't really get a lot of funding. You don't get a lot of, you know, platform time. Is there a stigma that you've noticed throughout your life with being in the music industry or having an education in, in music? I think for sure. I've noticed this in myself when people ask what I do. I've always wanted to like cling to something that sounds more foundational than saying I'm a musician. Because when you tell someone that, people are like, what do you do? I think that's what's hard is it's hard to explain it to people because it's hard to define because it's not like I'm a product manager. You're like, oh, cool. I'm a salesperson. Oh, okay, cool. I'm a musician. What? Like, wow. Oh, so you like to play guitar. That's cool. And that's tough because it's something that us as musicians feel ourselves. We're like, yeah, what do we do? And I think it's hard because basically to survive as a musician, if you're not like super famous or maybe teaching at a university, and even then you don't get paid well, let's be real, you have to do so many different jobs. And so that's something where when people ask me what I do, I teach students privately, I play gigs. So it's like, it's always random stuff that it's, and it's a big collection of things. You have to be really versatile to make it as a musician. And so I think it takes a lot of courage and bravery these days to be able to just say, I'm a musician. But the cool thing is you're your own boss and you've taken the road less traveled with unique instruments like the accordion or maybe being an opera vocalist, right? What is it like taking the road less traveled in the music industry specifically? It can be really confusing. You have to really believe in yourself because it's just not a clear path. And that's something I'm still struggling with. Like I just mentioned before, you just, you basically have to do so many things as a musician to piece together a career in it. And certainly if you want to be working like quote unquote full time, whatever we mean by that. And there's not an easy path. There's like some paths that you can take. You could work for a music company, which I did for many years. And I, it was so much easier to define who I was to people when I did that. I'd be like, oh, I'm a product specialist at this company, you know, and I demonstrate instruments. And that always sounded really cool. And that was something that gave me so much satisfaction. But in the end, for me there, I realized I wasn't just performing. I didn't get a focus on the things I wanted to do. And the roadless traveled basically looks like being really frugal sometimes, being really crafty and, you know, trying to market yourself and figure out what kind of gigs suit your talents, suit the instruments you do best. I do, I will say in a less negative tone, it, it feels very cool. Like when I get to tell people I play accordion, they're like, that's dope. So there's, it's a fun talking point, you know, no doubt about that. I've had a good party story. Beautiful. And so we currently live in the digital age. Many people don't even have CD drives in their laptops to play your album. So, you know, let's start with the bad news and we can finish with the good. What are some of the cons of our current technological environment and what are some of the pros? The pros are that, I mean, I'm a consumer myself as well. It's amazing to be able to listen to just about anything you want to find. You know, we can even find music that's older and would have been really hard to track down that's been like turned into streaming form. And we can listen to old jazz albums. We can listen to anything we want really quickly. And I think that is a pro because it makes more types of music more accessible. I'd say the con is as a musician, it feels nearly impossible to make money from selling your music. Like the only way to make substantial money, at least unless you're like full on famous and touring is to do live performances. And right now with COVID, that's basically impossible. And even without COVID, it's just exhausting. You know, that means you're gigging all the time and that's a cool lifestyle, but it's not normal. And that's something that if you can't do that, if you want to have a family, whatever, ideally as a musician, you can sell your music in a way that's profitable. And it just doesn't seem like with streams, they don't add up. I know that there's rules around when you get paid, 
based on how long someone streams something. And it's just it's kind of brutal. It, it really takes advantage of the musician, I think. And the rules I have, the rules right here in front of me is that Spotify will only pay artists streaming revenue if the listener reaches the 30 second mark. But the data shows that there is a 35% chance that a person would skip before that mark. So do artists have to adapt to streaming services to make it so that the first 30 seconds are attention grabbing? Yeah. I mean, if it's about the money and we have to make a living as musicians, then you do have to adapt, right? You have to make it so that you can get paid. I'm in a wonderful position where I have a husband who has a salary that supports us both. And that's really lucky. So if I was on my own and I was only performing, I mean, 100%, I would be doing probably everything I could to make my music more financially fruit. And that sucks because that compromises the true musical intention, you know? And I realize this is actually a topic that could go a lot deeper. Just the idea of making music to please the, the crowds so that you can make money from it is kind of a tough concept. Let's get into it, right? So what's the relationship between the artist and the money? I think this, like anything else, really varies on the person. It has been one of my biggest struggles, the relationship between myself as an artist and money, mostly because just the way we're kind of brought up in the U.S. and is so common in the media is that your value, like your financial worth is pretty directly correlating to your value as a person. You know, like how well you're doing, how successful you are is like how much money do you make at what you're doing? And it's very impressive to people if you're a musician and you're like making a living wage. Like that's like, wow, that's really hard to do that. That's amazing. And that's really tough because it's led me to just feel really frustrated from, you know, gigs that I might take where I get quoted a number and I'm like, you are not understanding what has gone into this one hour of performance you're trying to hire me to do. And that's what's really hard. It's just an education, a lack of education, certainly in our culture, that the hour of music I might play at a gig is not like, okay, yeah, 50 bucks an hour. That's a great wage. We'll pay you 50. <laughs> you're like, I've been doing this for 20 three years, you know, most of my life. And that's what's going into this hour. You know, I didn't, I can't just do this. Like it's been so much training and that the financial worth of the time you put in as a musician to be able to do what you can do will never, in my opinion, once again, unless you're like a pop star, will never equate to the amount of time that you've put in. So I think what the venues don't understand is that this music or this art is an extension of your own life and your own self, you know, it's a part of you that you're putting out there for the world to see. So for them to understand what you're going through, they have to be empathetic. And for them to empathy, I think they'll have to at least have some basic knowledge. So you spent thousands of hours practicing and studying your instruments. Alternatively, someone can take the convenient route and pick up a music program, download many instrument sounds on that program, and create music without any practice. Is this a sign of musical innovation or bastardization? I don't want to put any style of music down. So I, I can see this from many sides and say, I think it's a little bit of both. What it what I feel like it's a sign to me is just that the times are changing. But I don't like to admit that because I think we'll really lose a lot of education, a lot of intelligence, a lot of well-rounded thinking from our from our kids and our just population of people if we lose the craft of making music in the real world, right? In the acoustic world. And that's what I fear the most. And so I can understand where it's like the demand is isn't there for the same level of musicianship that we used to in popular styles back to the 1700s. There used to be tons of orchestras that orchestral musicians could play in. 
You know, there used to be a lot more avenues for these trained musicians to have good paying jobs with, you know, maybe they composed for a court. I think that was something at one point way back in the day. And so I can understand that the demand for that isn't there anymore because we just don't have those scenarios. And so this innovation in music, I do think it's an innovation. I won't put it down. Also, I, I'm never going to deny that. I love when the beat drops, right? Like I'm a consumer of this newer music. I think it's fun. I just don't want us to lose the benefits that learning instruments and learning music, learning, learning music theory, like it's a language. We don't want to lose, a, it'd be like losing a language, you know, and letting it go extinct. And it's just such a benefit to the people who learn it and to our society to have musicians. That's what would make me really sad is if it transitioned to the point that there just aren't jobs, you know, for musicians who are trained. And it is feeling that way. Well, you bring up some really cool points because I guess the next question is, how can we better support musicians such as yourself now that music is almost free? I really thought on that for a bit because I, once again, I'm kind of in this paralysis as a musician where I'm like, I don't even always know what to ask for from people. I mean, the best way that I can think of in the position I'm in where I'm not, you know, a recording artist, I don't have like, I don't even have music streaming on Spotify. So if you want to support someone like me, who's maybe more of a gigging musician and doesn't have those opportunities right now, the best way you can is listen to our live streaming concerts for a little bit. And if you're able, send some resources there because that's the most direct way that we can replicate like, oh, thanks for coming to my concert and paying me for the music. That's really nice. That's how this should work. So that's the best way, at least for musicians in my position. Beautiful. What's an important message that you want our audience to take away from our discussion? What I would take, like if I'd condense this to my best of my ability, I would say recognize how important music is to you. Like really try to look at how much you actually utilize it and think about the people who make it and support them. What advice would you give someone who's learning a new instrument and not seeing improvements right away? I would say stick with it. I mean, I there's the old phrase that's like, you know, you'll be happy when you're older that you learned this. That's something that parents tell their kids when they're learning, right? I am definitely a living proof of that. I would have quit as a kid. There's no doubt. And now it's my career and I do love making music. So even if it doesn't become a career, like just know that it's a hard skill to learn. Whatever you're learning is difficult if it's music, but try to have fun, you know, like try to enjoy what you're able to do as you go and just know that progress is going to be slow because it's a hard skill to acquire. Beautiful. If you found a genie in a bottle and you were given the option to become a famous musician, student, and apprentice, which artist would you choose to learn from? That is the hardest question. I thought on it for a while, but Ella Fitzgerald, I am obsessed with her vocals. And if I could just watch her sing and ask her what it feels like to sing with that beautiful voice, those buttery vocals, I would love that. Frank Morocco is an incredible accordionist that passed away just a couple years ago. So I have friends who got to work with him but he is like the jazz accordion man and I love his style and I wish I could have gotten to work with him. So that would be a cool one too. Let's go with those. Yeah. Two beautiful people. You're the third beautiful person. Thank you for sharing your journey and satiating our curiosities. You've been the best dancing partner on today's episode. I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks, Aziz. This podcast would not be possible without your support. So please subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends and family, check out the show notes for any references made and engage with us on Instagram and email. Thank you.